Hello, I'm Amber Athey, Washington editor of The Spectator, and I'd like to urge you all to give the gift of great writing this Christmas. The Spectator has a special Yuletide offer for Americano listeners. For $52, that's just $1 a week, you'll get a full subscription to The Spectator, which includes a beautiful monthly 88-page magazine and full access to our brilliant American website. We'll even throw in a free Parker pen so you can get scribbling yourself. Just go to spectator.us forward slash Christmas and subscribe. Have a very, very Merry Christmas from everyone at The Spectator. Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast. My name is Freddie Gray and I'm The Spectator's US editor. And I'm here to tell you, as if you didn't already know, that the 2020 presidential election is now over and Donald Trump appears to have lost. He isn't going away, however, not anytime soon. And it looks as though the last few weeks of a Trump presidency promised to be even more crazy, if that were possible, than the previous four or so years. We'll be discussing all that and more in the coming weeks. I'm joined today by Thomas Frank, who is an American historian and author of many brilliant books. Can I say many? Yes, you've done many. Yeah, uh, uh, many yeah. brilliant books, and the latest is uh, particularly good. Uh, I think uh, it's called "The People Know: A Brief History of Anti-Populism." And um, regular listeners to Americano may remember that we did a a crowdcast. Actually, it was a video thing, but we put it on the podcast. That's right. When the book first came out, and I have to, I'm grateful to you for that. That was actually a lot of fun. That was one of the best interviews I've done. So you call your podcast Americano. Am I yeah, right? It's a bit creepy, isn't it? A bit of a creepy title. It is, but so the way you just pronounced the word, I thought you said Americana, which <laughs> is a, which is a word that we do use here in the United States to mean like you know uh, collectible stuff. I think that would be a better. I probably shouldn't slag off my own podcast on the podcast, but I think that would be a better name <laughs> because because um, the coffee, we have a coffee theme running through. Americana. So like that license plate up there, that's Americana. That's that is proper Americana. Is <laughs> yeah. that Kentucky? No, Kansas. Kansas. I yeah, yeah. Kansas. But anyway, yeah. sorry, we should get the, the subjects that we're going to talk about. But I thought first of all I'd ask you, I just I hope that you're not going to cry during this podcast. Well, I am I am very sentimental. And but I have this problem with people not believing in my, you know, that I'm virtuous enough. And so I have to establish it. So I will be I will be crying. If you could well up a little bit, maybe that would, that would actually <laughs> we, get some we get a few more listeners. So just so your listeners understand, Mr. Gray is referring to an essay that I just wrote for Le Monde Diplomatique. Uh, about about crying in American politics. It's just it's funny how much of it there is. People weeping all the time. Well, I think we definitely have it in Britain. The sort of the stiff upper lip has gone. It's very wobbly these days, and there's a lot of there's a lot of public crying. Yeah, I think everybody cries in public now. They do. Yeah. Uh, uh, anyhow, it's look. I was just having fun when I wrote that essay, but it's actually a great subject for uh, you know for further study or evaluation if you wanted to. The the one that really blew my mind of all the different examples of crying. Well, there are two of them that really bothered me. One was uh, Brett Kavanaugh, the Supreme Court justice during his uh nomination of course his nomination you know his hearings were almost derailed by an accusation of sexual assault from like when he was in high school and um he he chose to respond in this really um 
surprising way. You remember he kind of, he, he got, he alternately really angry and then <laughs> really sad. Yes. I shouldn't, I shouldn't laugh at it, but, but the sad part where he, he, he breaks into tears in his Supreme court confirmation hearings. And, and I, and I went back and looked at it and it was really funny. He, he did it to himself. He was, he was talking about his, one of his kids saying her prayers. And it was such a maudlin story that he caused himself to break down in this kind of hideous blubbering, you know? And, uh, well, I, I read that in your piece, but I, I didn't remember that bit. I just remember him crying or certainly looking like he was about to blub. No, no, he, that's right. He, he had tears in his eyes all, the t- all through it. But, but he actually, like, what, what really made the, the waterworks go, what really t- threw the switch was, was what he told this story about one of his kids saying her prayers. And she said, you know, Daddy, should I pray for your accuser? And, uh, you know, and, and he's like, oh, she's only seven years old. Oh, my God. The wisdom of children there. You know, oh, my God. And then the other one was Van Jones. Poor Van Jones, you know, who I, I always think of as a, a, a talk about a stiff upper lip. You know, this is a former revolutionary. And when when they finally announced that Biden won here a couple of weeks ago, he's on CNN and, and he and he and he and he breaks down. He starts crying about it. And instead of saying, you know, look, they got a lot of other people there in the studio at CNN. They can easily they can easily cut to somebody else who's not crying about it. But the camera stays on him crying for two whole minutes. And they as he tries to choke out, you know, his his sentences. And it's just like it's painful to watch. And then you realize that's the point. Yeah. It's that's why they did this. That's that's not the reason that he cries. He cries because he is actually, you know, uh, overcome by sentiment and overcome by emotion. But just think about the the director. Yes, but uh, but what's the adjective that I'm looking for here? The, the how hardened and and uh, you know to 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 make a spectacle out of your own guy like that. Yeah, you know this is not Brett Kavanaugh. There's nobody else in the room when Brett Kavanaugh does this. There's nobody else in the room to go to. You know, but but when Van Jones, you know, there's lots of other people they could point the camera at. Anyhow, well, I think it's it's mawkish, isn't it, to use a word that came up in Britain recently? It's but it's 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 manipulative. Uh, it, it, it's you know, I'm sorry, I'm looking for a word and I'm not finding it in my. Well, I mean, I I I think that actually it is quite a good way into what I want to talk about, Joe Biden, because I feel we're getting indications of what this presidency is going to look like, and a lot of it is about kind of emotional grandstanding. And I know that in your piece, you pointed out that they do this on the left and the right, that, you know, Trumpists cry as much as Democrats. Yeah. But certainly with this administration, there seems to be a lot. Oh, Trump, of, Trump is the king of the whiners. <laughs> I mean, just look at him. To give him some credit, does not, I mean, I haven't seen him cry. No, there's no actual tears. That's right. He doesn't actually do that, but he is the biggest complainer that the world ever saw, which he's just one step away from crying. I think if he actually broke down and cried, it would actually do him good, you know? the public would like him more. (laughs) (laughs) One thing that I'd be quite struck by, and we've we've covered it a bit in The Spectator, is this Avril Hines, the new director of national intelligence, did a speech in which she said, I've always spoken truth to power and I will continue to always speak truth to power. And I thought that was, it's not crying, obviously, but it's a similar sort of ostentatious Nobility. Yep. Yep. Ostentatious nobility. Yep. 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 Well, that's liberalism deals in that nowadays. And this kind of uh, you go back and look at the Hillary Clinton campaign or well, not the Hillary. I I don't want to blame Hillary. I I 
always I hate to admit it to you, Mr. Freddie Gray, but I, I kind of liked Hillary Clinton. <laughs> but I was at the I was at the Democratic convention in 2016. You're gonna cry now. <laughs> I Freddie, I I, I wait. <laughs> But I was at the Democratic Convention in 2016. This is actually where the idea for that article came from. And they, there is so much what you on the right call, I'm sorry, you're not really on the right by American standards, but you know what I mean, virtue signaling. Yeah. And I, I determined a long time ago that I would not use that phrase. I also won't use the phrase political correctness because I think they're, they become cliches and they block us from understanding what's going on rather than help us to understand it. But there's so much of that when you go to the Democratic Convention. And if you read like Hillary Clinton's biographies, if you look at anything that she's put together to describe her own life, there's tons of this kind of what I call virtue questing. They showed this film strip at the Democratic Convention where it's about Hillary Clinton's life. And three or four times in the course of this film, it shows people starting to break down and cry. <laughs> you know, because they're so and, and you say, well, why do they cry? Are they sad? It's not that they're sad. It's that they are they're contemplating either their own nobility or the nobility of somebody that's, you know, th that's helping them, you know, Hillary, you know, yeah. Hillary herself does not cry. She's not, she's like Trump. She's got this hard, you know, steely exterior. Yes. Unlike her husband, Bill Clinton, you know, this is a guy that could like switch it off and on, you know, yes. but, <laughs> but in this video, like all these different people keep crying when they, they, when they are moved by the nobility of Hillary or the nobility of the democratic party. And there's this, Tons of this kind of virtuous grandstanding that these people do. What sort of bugs me about it is that they, well, a lot of things bug me about it. I mean, this is something that you could write, you could write many books about. But what bugs me about it the most is when you compare these people's incredibly virtuous understanding of themselves to what they do when they're in power. Yeah. Which has nothing, it's like, it's like it has nothing to do with that. It, the the virtue just it, the, you know all of their all of their noble sentiments just immediately evaporate, and they're like doing you know targeted tax credits or whatever you know some like piddling little tossing a band aid on the hemorrhage you know. Well, I think this is a lot about Joe Biden. I mean, everybody says he's a good guy in Washington. He's sort of liked by people. He's clubbable. Everybody, everybody loves that guy. But if you look at his sort of record, he's done bad, bad things, right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's exactly it. He's you know, I, I don't want to I've written about this in the past, but this is a guy who has had a hand in almost every dreadful thing that the Democratic Party has done in the last 30 years. The, tra the trade agreements. He was there, man. He was. Yeah, he, he was close to the scene of the crime. <laughs> the uh, the the crime bill of 1994. That was him. He wrote that. Here he was one of the authors of that, and he had a hand in a lot of the crime bills of the Reagan era as well. You you want to talk about deregulation of banks? His fingerprints are all over that stuff. This is a guy that is implicated in all of the terrible things. One of the biggest ironies of this year, and uh, it's unfortunately it's an irony that is going to escape most of our you know, political commentariat is that in this great year of Black Lives Matter, where you have you know, these enormous protests all over America against, against police brutality and against this lavishly overfunded 
police establishment here in America. By the way, uh, protests which I agree with, and I, you know, I, I hate police brutality, and I hate the way we've militarized our police in this country. Well, when you go to figure out who's res- responsible for that. Joe Biden is one of the names that comes up. It is highly ironic that he was the Democratic candidate in this great year of Black Lives Matter. And it is it is even it is doubly ironic that the Republican uh, presidential candidate, Donald Trump, couldn't figure out a way to make that stick or to make any kind of political hay out of that. He couldn't do anything with it. He did try. He did try. He did try. But it was so, you know, weak. His efforts, his efforts were so uh, limp, you know, he did talk about it, but he, you know, he did talk about mass incarceration, but he was just, he was just reading off of a, of a, a teleprompter. His heart wasn't in it. He didn't even know what the words meant. He was just, his mouth was just saying words. The thing is, this is the funny thing about Trumpism in the hands of a real politician, they would have made Biden pay for that. You know, you want to talk about how you split, how you fragment the democratic coalition. Oh my God. Well, that is a way. <laughs> that is how you do it. You know, that is the wedge issue to end all wedge issues. And Trump couldn't figure that out because uh, he's, he's such a he's a he's a he's a shitty politician. He's a lousy politician. But I think they got themselves in a bind, sort of Team Trump did, because they wanted to simultaneously say the radical left is going to take over and it'll be anti. Yeah. Oh no. And then they wanted to, he wanted to be on, he wanted to be on the side back, you know, back the police. And also, uh, and I actually had a bet with, uh, Matt Taibbi and Katie Halper. We were watching the Republican convention and I was saying, he's going to say both of them in the same sentence. He's going to be like, you know, we gotta, we gotta stand behind the cops, you know, thin blue line, whatever it is, blue lives matter, you know, and he's going to attack Biden for mass incarceration in the same. And he eventually did it. It wasn't at the Republican convention. It was in one of the debates. He actually did it. Uh, Trump did it. But the thing is that his heart wasn't in it. Now, a real politician and the contradiction, come on, these are Republicans we're talking about. The contradiction doesn't matter. You know, <laughs> nothing matters with these guys, but he couldn't pull it off. And that uh, I found that I found that really interesting. I mean, he could have. Um, well, yeah, what the hell? Doesn't matter anymore. Uh, he's 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 done for Trump. And now he's just spinning his wheels and making a fool of himself in the most despicable way. Well, I wanted to ask you about that because I think this is going to be a sort of rather broad, broad podcast, so forgive me, but... If you want me to talk about, like, <laughs> the Democratic cabinet, and I'm not doing... No, no, let's not do that. Let's talk about Trump's um, uh, overturn the election. Now let's talk about the Democrats. Let's talk about Trump's overturn the election. I mean... Did you did you stay up on election night? Did I? Yeah, I did. I did. I I was I, I well I stayed up until like eleven or twelve and but you know nothing they couldn't decide anything so I mean I thought it was very strange and it you know still feels like a strange election and I think I don't think it's corrupt in the way that a lot of uh, Republicans do think it's corrupt but I do think the whole mail in balloting thing is fraught with with risk and disaster really oh of course and uh, look and I was in. Um... I went to the polling. I voted here in Maryland and uh, all, you know, and I just went in and did it the same as I always do. But all around me were people quizzing the uh, election officials about their mail in ballots or a relative's mail in ballots. It was clearly a system that was uh, I thought it was going to have a lot more problems than it did. And uh, and then when I, I traveled, I went to Kansas City for the for Election Day itself. And uh, my my father voted, my 92 year old dad voted in Kansas City and told me the same story when he came back from the polling place that everybody there was just like 
everybody was confused about their mail-in ballots and what had happened. And, you know, so I thought there were going to be, uh, I thought it was going to be a much bigger mess than it actually was. But, you know, we still don't know the complete results yet. I mean, we know them enough to see who won, right? That's all done. But like the results for New York, are still coming out. There's no chance that Trump won New York, of course, but but it's you know it's funny that there's still we still don't have the complete picture. Well, and how do you think it's going to shake out? It's 14th of December is when the Electoral College votes, assuming there's no sort of spectacularly strange reversal. You know, that that do you think he'll go gracefully, or do you think he's going to have to be? He's not a graceful man. That's just not in his <laughs> DNA. Uh, he's. I doubt he'll go to Biden's. Uh, inauguration. I can disagree. I'll, I'll make a bet with you. I'm going to say that he will. You think he will? Yeah. How will he do that when the cameras are all on Biden and nobody's paying any attention to him? That's going to be like humiliating for him. Well, I mean, the rumor is, and I think it's one he's put about himself, that he is going to do a. Yeah, he's going to go down to Mar-a-Lago or something and immediately launch his, <laughs> his, his, uh, his attempt at a comeback. But I, I will bet you uh, $10. All right. It's a deal. Attends the inauguration and behaves with a reasonable level of decorum. Of civility? You think so? Yeah. I, I think he will not show up. I think he'll boycott Biden's inauguration. And uh, he's, but he's already, what he's trying to do, by the way. So my, my whole theory of Trump and Trumpism is that it's, it, you know, we've seen all this before. He just pushes everything to a new level. You know, the, like all of these, uh, you know, all of my liberals, you know, so upset about, about his bigotry. It's like, we've seen that before. They've been doing this for a long time. I mean, Richard Nixon, you know, Ronald Reagan, you know, George W. Bush. This is, this is who these guys are. Uh, you know, Trump is just a little more blatant about it, but he, what he's trying to do right now is delegitimize the, the the Democratic administration. They did the exact same thing with Obama. Yeah, you remember all the stuff about his his birth certificate, and they did the exact same thing with Bill Clinton. They were always denying that he had that he'd won a majority. Well, he didn't win a majority, but you know, it was a three way election that time. But at the risk of making a very partisan point, they did the same to him. Yeah. Exactly. No, that is actually that is actually true. And one of the most annoying things about political commentary in America is that it's like, for whatever reason, uh, you know, as we, as we're all decrying what Trump is doing, and it needs to be decried. It's I, I I cannot believe what he's doing in Georgia right now. It's so stupid and counterproductive, and it's it's destructive of our nation. You know, that that Democrats were saying very similar things four years ago. Um, you know, so, uh, encouraging the Electoral College, you know, Democratic commentators, liberals, encouraging the Electoral College to, you know, vote their conscience and, and not let Trump become president and this kind of thing. Uh, yeah, they were doing that. And it, and it carried on a long time. I mean, I wonder whether... Well, I don't think he's a legitimate president. And and look, in, in truth be told, he didn't get a majority. He, you know, Hillary got more votes than him. And by my standards, that's, you know... Should be majority rules. I really believe that. But in our system, yes, he was he was elected president. That's. <laughs> but don't you find it weird? And I'm not being a conspiracy theorist. I hope. Don't you find it weird that 80 million voters voted for Biden? Is it just because people dislike Trump that much? Do I think that's weird? No. That's there's more people and there's more voters every time. You. I mean, that's the nature of, in our country, the population grows. I don't know about your country, but... <laughs>
<laughs> in our country, the population gets bigger every year. I think ours does, but the electorate doesn't. It's like Japan. In Japan, it gets shrinks all the time, right? It's true that the population has grown. But what I find very odd about it is that even taking that into account, Biden did not inspire anybody, I don't think. Uh, I, I was no, in America, it's, uh, anti-Trumpism is what motivated it people. It was just purely a referendum on Trump. Not purely, but largely. Nothing is ever pure in our in our system. Remember, there's you look at you look at what people voted on, and you'd be surprised. I mean, I thought I thought COVID was obviously the the number one issue. I mean, obviously, right? It screwed up everybody's life. You know, you're stuck in in you know whatever it is right now because of it. I can't leave my house. Or, I mean, I can, but I'm I'm reluctant to, right? You, you know the story, and uh, uh, and yet that wasn't for a lot of people. That still wasn't the number one issue. Uh, it, it's 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 absolutely fascinating uh, American politics and and how it breaks down. But yeah, anti-Trumpism motivated a lot of people. And by the way, among Trump voters, we don't really know how many were motivated by hatred of liberalism. But I would guess a lot. I'm actually gonna I'm trying to write an essay about that right now. We don't know the answer to that, but I'm going to try to supply one. Well, I, I think it's a pretty significant factor. One factor I would like to talk about is uh, what's been called safetyism. And that Biden, with his, he was very much the kind of the, the pandemic candidate, as it were. And I think there may have been sensible reasons for him to be that way. But he's already said today we're going to, you know, have a hundred days of mask wearing going around America. I thought everyone We've already got that, you know. Yeah, yeah, that's already happened. It's already happened. So it's another hundred days. But I think it's going to be a, a health and safety administration until they've got broken the back of the pandemic with a vaccine. Or I hope so. But you know, look, it's it's a big country. I, you know, I don't know what's going to happen. You're talking about Biden. One of the things that made Biden a success, where Hillary was a Hillary failed was nobody hates Biden. Hillary had a tremendous amount of, and I say this as someone that voted for Hillary and thought she would have made a good president, even though I was, you know, I criticized her in print, which I thought was, was, was fair to do at the time. This is a recurring confession. Yeah, exactly. That's what we do. I don't know. I mean, or that's what we used to do in this profession. I mean, it's like not anymore. You know, you have to take up, take a side and be like loyal to it or something. But <laughs> Anyhow, uh, wh why Biden succeeded where she failed, a lot of that is because she'd had 30 years of Republican hate. You know, I remember back in the 90s, Rush Limbaugh going after her all the time. She was just like this pinata for the conservative movement and in a way that Biden has never been. It's difficult to hate Joe Biden, even when you remember what we were talking about before, that his fingerprints are all over the worst deeds of the Democratic Party. It's hard to dislike him, even given that, you know, because he's such a he has such a winning personality and he's such a classic grandfatherly character. I'm in Washington, D.C., or I'm in the suburbs of Washington. Everybody in this town has a Biden story. Every, I, I don't. I've never met the man, but I have, I, you know, I've been collecting them. And people will tell you the funniest goddamn stories about this guy. I have no idea if they're true. I wonder if I should. I, I would like to tell you one of them, but I don't know if I should because I've. There's no way to know if it's true or not. Is it what you you don't want to say? Because is it lewd? No, no, no. It's actually not. It's actually humorous and 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 makes Biden seem like a nice guy. Well, please tell it. But it's not. I don't know if it's true. Oh, okay. We'll tell it, and we'll we'll we with the disclaimer. Okay. So a guy I know was having dinner at a at a, a well-known restaurant in DuPont Circle, which is an area in D.C., a, a restaurant that I'm familiar with and used to go to all the time. And he and, he and a friend of his are, are having dinner at this restaurant. 
And this is in the Obama years. And what do you know? Joe Biden walks into the restaurant with his Secret Service detail. And uh, the guy that my friend is having dinner with knows Joe Biden faintly for you know some reason. So Biden basically invites himself over to their table and starts telling anecdotes <laughs> and will not stop. <laughs> And it just goes on and on and on. It is like completely monopolizing the conversation at their table. And finally, they're like, they're like, you know, we got to we got to ditch Joe Biden. Here. And they figure out they have to brush off the vice president. And they, like have to, they basically, you know, with the, the expression, they have to take French leave. <laughs> they basically have to ditch their own like their own dinner because Biden just won't stop. He just won't stop talking. Yeah, that, that's my that's my story. But uh, well, I always think it's quite a uh, insightful, quite interesting part of his personality. That he's, but he's a, but he's a classic politician in that sense. I mean, the the reason I don't know if that story is true or not, but it rings true because that's the kind of guy he is. He's so friendly. You know, he's a born friend maker. He likes to do stuff like that. I can imagine him doing that because that's the kind of guy he is. Yes, he's just a he's a very very friendly individual. He, like all politicians, he loves to, you know. And he's famously tactile. You know, he loves, he's, yep. a, he's a touchy person. Uh, and I have talked to people who are in the room when he does the hair sniffing thing. <laughs> <laughs> like, whoa, what, what is up with that, Mr. <laughs> Joe Biden? <laughs> he doesn't do that anymore, by the way. Did you notice he's changed his, well, he can't. He's got that mask on all the time, right? He said he was going to stop doing that. But I went to a rally in February and he was doing a lot of uh, kind of, not quite well a bit of sniffing but you know kind of uh, he was very tactile with people yeah and it's just his, i don't think it's seedy i think it's just his sort of way did i ever tell you there's a, one of the uh, there's a, a great one of the best accounts of bill clinton is that novel by oh what's his name something klein okay it's called damn it i can't believe i'm forgetting this it's the great account of the 1992 election and it's fiction uh it it was called a uh, primary colors oh yeah yeah Joe Klein. Anyhow, he has this great description of Clinton in it. I think it's in that novel. It might be somewhere else, but Joe Klein was a great, I disagree with him on a lot of things, but he was a great observer of Bill Clinton. And uh, he had this description of Clinton somewhere. It may have been in that novel and it may have been in a piece of journalism about him, but he's like, he's, he's describing Clinton working a crowd. And do you, do you have a pet cat by any chance, Freddie? Uh, we do, actually, yeah. You know how a cat will sit in your lap and will knead your, your flesh? You know what I'm talking about? Like, he works his paw. He says that's how Bill Clinton is with the crowd. He just, like, starts pressing people like a cat. <laughs> <laughs> that's just like is that he has this need, you know, to uh, to touch people. Well, I think the thing about Biden that I find uh, interesting is, is this friendship with John McCain. They were really... Tight. They were even in the two, you know, 2000 election. They were against each other, and they would sort of pretend to be quite. There was a lot of pretend anger towards each other, but actually they were they, they were buddies throughout. It, it seems to me that's a very Washington couple, John McCain and Joe Biden. Yeah, and uh, they were both huge friend. I mean, they were both obviously very popular guys in the Senate, and Biden is friends with a lot of these people now. Look, when you talk to Republicans about Biden, they'll say, you know, when they're, you know, the the microphones are off and they're talking about this guy, they'll say, you know, we like Joe Biden because we could basically, uh, you know, he'd sign off on anything. 
<laughs> and when you talk to Democrats about it, they're like, yeah, Joe Biden is the greatest negotiator there ever was. And we send him into a room, you know, Obama would send him into a room with the Republicans and he'd emerge with a deal. Uh, you know, <laughs> I don't know which way you want to take it. You know, was it a good deal for who was it a good deal for? You know, who won in the in this deal making? But everybody is counting on Biden as the great the greatest deal maker since Lyndon Johnson working across the aisle. Yeah. Now, Johnson didn't have Johnson had Democratic majority overwhelming back then. Of course, America, the Democrats were by far the you know dominant party in America. And Johnson only had to work with mainly had to work with members of his own party, but was able to talk them into famously was able to talk people into anything, you know, uh, and and uh, I wonder if Biden has that that superhero power, because if he does, you know, now is the time to switch it on because he's going to need it. Well, so far, the cabinet seems pretty centrist, I would say. Uh, Yellen, uh, as um, Secretary for Treasury, um, she seems... I'm actually more positive about her than about a lot of the other choices. Right. Why is that? Uh, Just because of things that she said. She was also a low, you know, a low interest rate person when she was in charge of the Fed. You know, we're going to see. Um, um, well, what about, I mean, the, the foreign policy team, we, I talked about this on the last podcast I did, but it'd be good to talk to you about it. I mean, they, they seem to me classic swamp Washington people, right? Yeah. There, no, there's no, <laughs> no doubt about that. Yes. It, the, it, it is the, it is the, uh, the, the DC elite are back in charge. Yep. And uh, uh, I'm not, you know, all of my fellow, I'm not really much of a journalist anymore. I was going to say all of my fellow commentators, but I, I had to turn in my pundit card some years ago. Well, you did write a piece for The Guardian. Uh, the- no, no, I, I, I still write for uh, for magazines and newspapers in other countries. But I, I, my, my, my pundit card was canceled, if you will. But uh, so my fellow pundits here in, uh, here in America, all they're all like really relieved at... Um, at, uh, at at who he's putting in place, but I'm I'm here to tell you, yeah, it's just like it's the same people. They are back, back in the government. I, I think the only surprising part is how predictable it, it is. You know, it's almost sort of too predictable. Do you not think that, that he, he he's showing almost no originality? Well, look, the sad thing is that um, that the the Bernie people and the the, the the you know my my friends on the left all thought that they were you know because they had uh, got in line and supported him and had been, you know, highly supportive of Biden. They they all thought that that their heroes were going to get prominent positions in the administration and that's not happening. They're, they're pretty um uh unhappy about it. Well, that's the great uh Republican hope now is that it, it, it the 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 Democrats Although they look, some of the people look, some of the people on the economics team are not bad okay um i'm thinking of jared bernstein at the council of economic advisors heather boucher from my perspective these are two really these are two really good choices these are members of the council of economic advisors that is not a you know a really uh a really powerful uh position and do you think if Biden's administration is as bad as you fear it might be certainly on foreign policy i know i, I know you're saying you you're not too pessimistic about the, the economy stuff. But doesn't it set up a scenario where either Trump again in 2024 or uh, a Republican nationalist will just destroy him in 2024 if we have... Yeah, it depends on the economy. The, uh, yes, he, we are per, in some ways... I mean, you saw the results. We haven't even talked about the 
the most astonishing aspect of the election results, which was you look at the way the, demo, the de demographic groups shifted. Uh, Trump improved his standing among nearly every demographic group except for white men. Did you see this? Yeah, I did. It's extraordinary uh, that Trump did especially well among black. I mean, not well, well, not in he still lost, you know, like black voters, for example, but he did better among black voters than he had done last time. And that any Republican has done since like for in a long time. And uh, his his results among Latino voters were, were was especially surprising. You look at those counties along the Rio Grande, you look at Florida. Muslims, 35 percent among Muslims. He got. Yeah. So there's a lot of. I mean, that one is particularly astonishing, given how uh, hostile he was to them. <laughs> you know, like that, that was extremely strange. Uh, so something is going on here. And if this continues, this is uh, extremely bad news for the Democratic Party. I mean, one of the things that I've always said is, well, you, I don't know if you've ever read my book, What's the Matter with Kansas? But the whole idea of that book is, yes, he's got the white working. This is long before Trump. The, the right has claimed the sort of white working class today. But uh, I mean, tomorrow that's going to it's going to expand. This is a message that that is capable of bringing in all sorts of different demographic groups. And if and you we ignore that at our peril. You know, this was sort of the argument of the book. And we did ignore it. And now it is here. I didn't think it would happen with Trump because I thought Trump was too much of a bigot. Yeah, uh, but I knew that it would happen eventually. That the Republicans would start to uh, be able to reach out to those to those demographic groups. Anyhow, it's it started, and I'm astonished by it. And it is like if that continues, it is that spells huge trouble for the Democratic Party. I mean, their long term plan. You and I have talked about this before, Freddie. Their long term plan was to reach out to these affluent voters in the you know, in the in the suburbs, these professional class suburbs. And I can talk about that if you want, because that's where I come from. Right. And uh, uh, and they did that. They they had great success doing that. Unfortunately, the, the what they left behind. I don't know if you're aware of this. There's a lot more working class people than there are people with advanced degrees. Yeah. Did you know this? <laughs> There's a huge surprise. Well, I think what's quite interesting is actually the people who benefited from the Trump economy were the sort of aspirational lower middle class in, I, I spent the, the week before the election in Bethlehem in Pennsylvania. You did? And, yeah. Why didn't you tell me? You were here? I was here. I was here. Yeah. You should come down to DC, man. It was a bit flyby. It was a bit flyby, but I was in, I was in Pennsylvania for a bit and, um, we sort of went, and it was a lot of a lot of that that area seemed to be sort of post-industrial, depressed, but becoming quite affluent. I wondered whether Trump's the sort of success of the Trump economy—I'm sure it was fueled with debt and whatever—whether that actually cost him the election, because a lot of uh, sort of lower-class people started to become quite aspirational and became more democratic in their attitudes. Uh... Oh, uh, you're 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 you you lost me there with that last bit. Look, tr what Trump what Trump did what Trump did, uh, and you got to hand it to him. Although, yeah, you know, maybe you don't, but he got full employment, or he got as close to full employment as we've seen in my lifetime. Well, look, I was born in 1965. We had it was it was better then, but uh, since the Vietnam War, uh, we haven't had anything like what he delivered. Now, whether you can give the credit uh, up for that to Trump or to someone like Janet Yellen, 
Um, that's debatable, okay? But nevertheless, he was president when this happened. So, Freddie, I was writing these stories three years ago about, you know, there are all these news stories all over America. If you searched local newspapers all over America, they were talking about a labor shortage, a labor shortage in the United States. And this is like, if you are a, a working class person, or as you put it, sort of aspirational entrepreneur, this is a really good situation, <laughs> <laughs> and these people were doing well under uh, under Trump. Now, the, the, the COVID, the pandemic blew it all to hell. But there was this period where those and it's possible that some of those people uh, stuck with him. But I think COVID, you know, and, and the, his response to COVID was absolutely dreadful. This guy had no idea what he's doing. What is there? I mean, there is an irony there, too, which nobody on the left we'll talk about, which is, you know, we accuse this guy of wanting to be a dictator and he is narcissistic and egotistic in a way that's, you know, borderline, I don't know, authoritarian or something, but he had the perfect opportunity, which was COVID and, and he couldn't figure out what to do. <laughs> this idiot, <laughs> he couldn't figure out that like, you know, this was his opportunity. If you're going to be a, if you're going to be an authoritarian man, here it comes. Here's, here's the golden opportunity. And he couldn't he you know, he couldn't grasp that. Well, I think, I mean, perhaps he just never was an authoritarian. Is that not possible? Well, I know, but he really wants to win this election and and, and he lost. And now he's, you see what he's trying to do right now. And that's really frightening. But I think a lot of that is just his, this man's insane vanity, his insane vanity. Anyhow, we need to get back to what you said, because we're almost out of time here. But what you said about four years from now, because either either he's going to stage a comeback, he's quite elderly uh, now. So I, I, there's, there's doubt in my mind as to whether he personally will do it or whether one of his kids will do it. He'll be Joe Biden's age. I know, but Joe Biden, look, Joe Biden is already older than Ronald Reagan was when he stepped down and Reagan was not, it was not doing that well when he was, do you remember this? Yeah. Reagan was, uh, was visibly slipping in, in his final years. And I'm not excited about Biden's, you know, uh, aging while he's in office. This is not a good thing. I'm old enough to remember you know, when Jimmy Carter was president and, you know, when he started, he was all youthful and energetic. And when he ended, he looked like an old man. Do you remember this? The presidency takes it out of you. It, it is like that is a hard, hard job. Well, there was a, I think it was Spitting Image, which is a British uh, sketch. I used to have Reagan when I was little uh, and it would be Reagan talking and he'd be saying, my fellow, my fellow. And someone would whisper in his ear, Americans. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. But look, so somebody's going to be running against Biden in 2024, and it's going to be somebody with the Trump message. Okay, that's obviously what is in charge in the in the Republican Party nowadays. And whether you want to call it uh, nationalism or you know economic nationalism or something like that, uh, this kind of fake workerism. That is, you know, when they the, Trump and his friends, Steve Bannon, say we're making the Republican Party into a workers party, they really are trying to do that. And, and for someone like me, uh, you know, who remembers when the Democrats were closely identified with organized labor, that is so uh, disturbing uh, and uh, you know, bothersome in, in a million different ways. But of course, look, that's where the votes are. In this country, in every country, <laughs> and if if they can if they can pull that off, yes, they're going to succeed. Now, how is how does Biden stave that off by delivering a, a, what Trump did by delivering full employment, by delivering a roaring economy, by doing a kind of New Deal thing? You know, uh, it's obvious what you have to do to to prevent that from happening. But is Biden going to do it? I strongly doubt it. I strongly doubt it. Well, let's uh, conclude on that note. 
Um, but thank yeah, you okay, very okay, much. So we, this is it. By the way, we can talk about this. Uh, you know, we got four years to talk about this. Oh, wait, I'm swearing off politics. Did I tell you that? Oh. I'm so, as you would say in England, bloody sick of it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so bored with it. It's just round and round and round the same crap, you know, and uh, I'm so tired of it. There's so many interesting things in this world, Mr. Freddie Gray. I, maybe we could do a podcast about crying in America because I, <laughs> I want to do some research. Well, look, I'm going to write a couple more essays about politics and then be done with it. But but I'm happy to talk to you about it anytime. Please do, Tom. It's a great pleasure to have you on, as always, and uh, all the best. All right. We'll see you later. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that episode of Americano. And I'd like to encourage you all to give us your feedback, positive comments or constructive comments only, please, to podcast at spectator.co.uk and say anything you like there as long as it's reasonably polite. (laughs) 